You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Hello, welcome to Living Truth with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. We are uh, very pleased and happy to have you with us. We are continuing in our discussion on the book of Jonah. And before we get started, just a little bit about what we do. We're uh, two friends that like to get together over coffee and discuss uh, the scriptures and discuss theology and the Bible. And, and we imagine that you are actually listening and uh, overhearing our conversation. And so, uh, welcome. Uh, today we're going to continue with some background information about the book of Jonah before we actually get, get into the actual text. Jonah is is a very familiar book, a familiar story to a lot of people, uh, but there's a lot of details that maybe people don't know or perhaps are missed or overlooked. So we do want to take a little bit of time just to talk about that. Last time we talked about things like who wrote the book, uh, perhaps when it was written, a little bit about the historical context of what of the time period in the mid eighth century BC, things like that. Um, whether the book uh, is is you know is actual fact or fiction, or whether it was a story or an allegory or actual history, and we tend to b- believe that it's actual history that was written. Things uh, that are spoken about in the book are are things that can be verifiable in history. Uh, the man himself, Joan, is a prophet who lives, who's mentioned actually in, in was it First Kings 14 or Second Kings, First and Second Kings? <laughs> it was all one book historically. It was all so one book Kings, historical. Right. So, and, and the fact, of course, that Jesus mentions the book, mentions Jonah and the, the events of the book. But we're going to continue with that. It really is, where does it come in the place of the canon of Scripture? In other words, where in the Old Testament? Because um, when you see your Old Testament, you have... Um, historical books, and you have prophetical books, and you have sort of poetry, psalms, writings type of books. And what's interesting about Jonah is that it is included as one of the prophetical books. And so that maybe shed some light on a little bit of the historicity and the veracity or the accepted veracity of the book. Yeah, John, I think it's important to note that when we're referring to it as a prophetic book, it's something of a special class of a prophetic book because um, he's not necessarily prophesying as you would think of with an Isaiah, albeit he does do that, as is uh, demonstrated in in, uh, the king's narrative, right, Uh, to Jeroboam the king. But but what we have here is a biographical account of his bearing a message to a nation, and it is prophetic in nature. He right. is a prophet, and so it is prophetic, but not like we think of the classical uh, prophetic books, as yeah, it were. Yeah, and you know something, just to, just to sort of interject that, you know, when people nowadays think of prophecy, they think, oh, okay, a predictive nature only of the future, you know, like a fortune-telling type thing. In, in Bible times, you know, especially here in the Old Testament, it was really more of a message from the Lord, and the message meaning to convey a message to a people 
to bring about a certain response. Well, know? yeah, what I don't want to do is I don't want to relegate it to fortune telling, um, but I want to use two phrases. That is forth telling and future telling. Right. It's certainly, if we look at the prophetic literature within the scope of scripture, there is an aspect of futuristic speak, right? Right, right. However, percent wise, the majority of the message of the prophets was a forth-telling message, right. a message that was given to the prophet by God, wherein they confronted the immediate audience and the immediate situation of the audience. And sometimes they would actually see to an immediate fulfillment, as in the Isaiahic passage, right, right. in order to um, uh, establish credulity or credibility for a future word, as now, it were. Now, just to, you know, again, we're having conversation here, just to bring that forward is that that is it's it's not like the prophetic office has left in that sense that is there's a job of the man of god to proclaim things from the lord that are meant to elicit uh, a, a response. response of hey you know here's where you're at and here's where god says you should be and you know there should be a repentance usually in the old testament it was often you know you're you're in the wrong and you know you got to repent but that that hasn't left, you know. We we think of okay, maybe you know, maybe the prophetic part as far as forth telling or or future telling, let's say, has, is not there as much. But the the significant role of the of the prophet of of bringing a message to the people of God for them to change something about their beliefs or their lives. That's so that still ought to happen now within the church within you know through the church, through the pastors and the leaders of the church. One of the things that I think is important as a distinctive, however, with that being said, is that whereas Jonah or Obadiah or Amos, etc., were giving us inspired speak from God, the prophecy that is given from the presbytery today would not be on an equal category with this. No, no, but I'm I'm talking about... The, the role, I'm not talking about what a pastor says is right. the word of God, like it's equal to scripture. I'm talking about the effect of that message. There ought to be a bringing forth of, of a message from the Lord. Say, hey, this is, the Lord is speaking to this man. I gotta, I'm, I'm hearing him, I'm hearing God speak. I ought to do something. You know, that, that, I don't know if that's, if that's still going on as far as, as effective as it should be. But I'm, I guess my whole point is, is that role is still there. Absolutely. Although the man of God today is a, a priest or a pastor, he doesn't have the same weightiness of being equal with the Word of God. I'm saying the effect ought to be people listen and the things change within society. And I think it's also important with what I said earlier to also articulate as a caveat to that, that in fact, individuals who would hear the word of the Lord through the guidance or directives of the Holy Spirit speaking to them via the illumination of the biblical text or via maybe an audible voice or or via circumstances, etc., they should not then equate that with the inspired text, right? Right. Now, there is currently a Bible that is preparing to hit the market, and that particular Bible is a Bible that has several blank ch- pages. Now, it doesn't have blank pages as some of our historical Bibles in times past did, namely room uh, uh, to make notations notes, or things yeah. of that nature, but they state that Bible and advertise it as such, uh, as 
when you happen to hear the word of the Lord or receive some sort of quote-unquote revelation, then now you are able to put that in Scripture so that as you are turning through Scripture, you can hold on to the word of God, not only his historical written word, but also what he has just spoken to you freshly. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a misunderstanding. So I thought it was important to clarify that what you're saying is absolutely accurate. Yeah. While there is a post that is in keeping with the sacred heritage of the of the prophet of the first testament or the prophet and emissary of the second testament it is important for us to understand that the current day presbyter stands with the authority of god and illumination from god to articulate and exposit the word of god but what we receive in this day and time is in no way shape form or fashion equivocal to the inspired word of god right but now you have something also analogous to that role, but you also have, as you do in, in the story of Jonah, unwilling prophets. Yes. Unwilling men of God who are unwilling to speak forth the truth of God to the people of God. And of course, Jonah is a perfect picture of not only the prophet who's unwilling, but the people who are unwilling to listen as well. You have the unwilling speaker and the unwilling listener. And so here written back in, you know, Mid-8th Mid century. century BC, right. yeah. you have a very relevant uh, text and message to today, you know. And so, as we go in through this, you know, and in the, you know, in, in the book of Jonah, we will discover that, of course, you know, Jonah, um, he can try to run and hide from that. But uh, but it's, there's there's an irony within that story, and we'll get to that in a second. There's a huge, there's a lot of irony in the, in the book of Jonah. Here's here's a prophet of God who doesn't want to speak for God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he he calls God his. You know, he is. Yeah, I'm, I'm a prophet, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the earth, the earth and the sea and the land and land, everything else like that. Right. Yeah, he's running away from that, and you know, and knows that God can do. You know, is in control of all that. So he's complicated. He's complicated. <laughs> he's very complicated, and so <clears throat> perhaps with really just as as moving along, just the purpose. You know, what's the the the, the purpose that is perhaps why you know what. Why is this book written? And maybe we've touched upon that, but maybe to more formally discuss that, the purposes of of this book. Well, a moment ago, we were talking about canonicity, and I I don't want to use phraseology that our audience is not necessarily familiar with, which you and I are. Let us define our terms clearly. The term canon uh, springs from a Greek word, kanon, kanon, and it means standard or rule Ra, or, or rod. measuring rod, yeah, like, right? Yeah. And so there are a few questions that court this, but there are a couple of simple questions that we'll address. Um, namely, John, when we're talking about canonicity, the question is, does this book bear the divine impress? Is it inspired of God versus other extra biblical literature that claims to speak from the voice of God, have the verbum day, the words of God, or the right. vox day, the voice of God, but in fact, it uh, clearly does not. Um, I, I think it's important to mention that since the mid-century, uh, mid-8th century BCE, before the Common Era, or before uh, Christ, if you prefer, um, that this book has been accepted. It wasn't until the Septuagint translators, yeah. right? Yeah. 70 to 72 uh, Hebrew or, or Jewish uh, scholars from Alexandria, Egypt, as a result of the, the, uh, the diaspora, um, they uh, were translating the Hebrew scriptures uh, into uh, Septuagintal Greek, um, 
so that uh, Jews would not lose their sacred text, as it were. Right. And uh, they had this sense, the translators did, that uh, the, the content was so fantastic within the book that they raised questions right. about the nature of the literature, right. but not whether or not the literature was inspired. Right. And obviously because of the, the whole fish thing. In, which becomes a in, problem for many people today, but I think right. there are several things that would argue for its legitimacy versus its illegitimacy or or or, 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 or the even, not just the fish the fish thing where people call it a well, but whatever, but also the the speed with which they repent. You know, the guy says barely five words. You know, and he's he's there not very long, and all of a sudden they're ready to. That's unusual. It is unusual, but it's not impossible. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, there, there was um, uh, there was a gentleman who was a uh, preacher on uh, the Titanic, uh, on the Titanic, and uh, when he was on the Titanic, he was getting ready to go down the uh, 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 ladder into a safety boat, and the individual that was above him, he wanted to make sure that they were saved, and so he asked them the the state of their soul, and they had a negative response, and he said, "No, you take this boat because I am." prepared um, uh, to live eternally with uh, the Savior, and uh, that short phrase was so efficacious in the heart of that person that, as I understand historically, the preacher sank, but this person lived. There's another preacher who was floating by and said... Uh, to some of the individuals on the boat, is your soul saved? Right. Uh, and, and they responded, one particular individual responded, I think not, sir. And then his message was, then believe on the Lord Jesus and it shall be. He floated by a few times and gave that single message, yep. right? And later on, about two years in the distance, that man who was at that time not saved preached in that presbyter's pulpit, mm. is your soul saved? If not, then believe on the Lord Jesus. It was a very brief message. Yeah. Noah had a very brief message of repentance for 120 years. So yeah. it's not odd. But but does, and, and maybe not to, to get off the other average, but doesn't that speak to the fact that when God calls you to speak, he's, he's going to give efficacy to your word or his word in the sense that... that it doesn't have to become, you don't have to preach rocket science. You just have to deliver what God has told you to deliver and let God handle the rest of the details. And by the way, if we take John's gospel seriously, then it's the Holy Spirit who convinces and convicts the world of sin and righteousness, right? right. And so my responsibility is to deliver the message. If I take Paul seriously, <clears throat> I don't want to come in fanciful speak anyway. Yeah. I want uh, the Lord to deliver the message in such a way that the demonstration will give all credulity right. to God and it will not be shared. His glory will not be shared. Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, so, but with the canonicity, obviously, you know, it has um, attestation of, of, of being as part of scripture from, from as long, from basically almost all of Jewish history, it has been attested. I mean, okay, Jesus himself attests to the historicity of Jonah and of course the story of, of Jonah. He appeals to Jonah, he appeals to the men of Nineveh that will rise up and say, hey, you know, these guys repented and yet here I am here and you guys aren't repenting. Um, he obviously gives, you know, credulity to, uh, to, um, to the message of Jonah. And, and in our scripture. thinking, and in most scholars' thinking, that really is the knell in the coffin yeah. of negative or liberal historical criticism, but, right? But one thing about, about Jonah, and this is maybe other than the fact there's this, this fantastical story of their account of him being swallowed by a fish, which, by the way, only takes up a couple of verses, you know, so mm-hmm. it's a very small segment. His, the, the, the story it's, or the, the book itself 
is different than other prophetical books. You know, you have Jonah almost uh, being introduced right up, up front as, okay, the word of the Lord came to, jo- to Jonah, and right off the bat, he's, he's, he's set off running. Most of the time within a prophetical book like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, whatever, there's stuff before that, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's a story or there's an account, there's, you know, there's, here's a little bit about this guy. And then, and then there's the calling of this prophet, right? This is different. And also the, the book of Jonah, it's written as a message to the, to the, the Assyrians. Yes. Which is very unusual. Now, of course, there's other account, there's other, uh, some other pro- uh, prophetic books that, um, not, well, couple other uh, sections of prophetic books that sort of have that same thing but this is significant that the entire story is well you know to to these assyrians to to the ninevites and so it's it's it in one sense it's it's not it's unusual it's different it's unique among the prophetical books let's just put it that way it is certainly unique but let us remember that the book of hosea starts out the same way the book of Micah starts out the same right. way. Right, and I'm not talking about the the the. Narr- I'm, I'm talking about as far as the the nature of of the prophecy. Absolutely. Of this of this, most of the time, the prophets are sent to Israel or to Judah. Right. And this is this is basically, hey, Jonah, go to a people that don't even live in Israel. Go to the Assyrians. Oh, by the way, Assyrians, they're your enemies. They're the last people on the face of the earth. You would think. That God would deliver a message of grace and repentance Absolutely. and salvation to. So you know that's you know most of the time in the prophetical books it's tell Israel, tell Judah, hey you know repent. So there's a uniqueness there. That's all I'm, I'm referring to as well. Absolutely. Um, As it pertains further to the canonicity, we speak of not only its legitimacy um, as an included work within the framework of the overall um, uh, Bible, uh, if you will, but we also speak of the reality of where it is placed. Right. Right? And uh, you pointed out earlier that it has four chapters, 48 verses, uh, maybe 1,321 words included in the book, right? How many letters did you count them? (laughs) (laughs) Is that where you do all the... (laughs) There are those uh, that are rabbis who do that, and I have great respect for them. How many infinitive constructs are there in that? With, with this, it's important to, to note, it is, it is um, uh, suggested that it is, of course, the 32nd book in the Bible and the 10th of all of the 17 prophetical books, but it's fifth of the minor prophets. Right. Right? But the book of the 12. The book of the 12. Yeah. And, and as it is structured within the book of the 12, uh, th- the minor prophetic books were of such a nature that they were almost taken or structured within the Masoretic text as one book. Right. Um, but secondarily... The, the minor prophets are not minor because their message is minute or minutia or insignificant. They are dubbed minor because of their size, right. but not because of their significance. Right. And the reader mustn't make a mistake and think that small amount, right, in, in taking up space means small message. This is a mammoth message, as you said, that is unique within the framework of the First Testament. Now, it's not, according to the Apostle Paul, that God did not intend to speak to the Gentilic nations, but this is one of those rare occasions along with 
with the ministry of Elijah on occasion and and uh, Elisha um, that you see an individual go in an effort to um, a foreign nation and you have a whole book yeah. uh, 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 that but is committed to that, now that task. And again, the, the size of the book, four chapters, I mean, it's something you can read in you can read this in a few minutes, right? Absolutely. Ten minutes, if that, if you take your time. And it's easy just to say, okay, I did, I read that, and, and I realized the depths of this book. I mean, that's, and that's the, that's, I guess the thing is, as, you know, as I'm reading it and studying it, and even Luther commented on that, or even Augustine commented on the, on the depths of, of this book, that there's, it's, it's, it just, it's deceitfully, you know, it's short, but yet there's, there's such depth of theology of the, the condition of the human heart. Oh yeah. I mean, here's here's a guy who's he's a prophet of God, but he doesn't want to bring the word of God. You know, he's 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 he is he is a, a not a, a walking conundrum. conundrum. Yeah. There's but yet he he speaks about a lot of us. You know, of this. Yeah, we're I'm a Christian. Yet I don't want to do certain things that God tells me to do. You know, there's. You know what I'm saying? There's a- this, this guy stands alongside the complicated, conflicted apostles. This is just the kind of person, the sort of individual that God uses, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, this is very forthright and blatant of Scripture. This is exactly what you would expect if God is the author and you don't just have human authors who are trying to manipulate um, their resume within Scripture. Right. So this guy, while he is sort of um, a problem, Right, he is at the same time uh, a representative, if you will, where we can anchor ourselves in the text and say, "Okay, I guess I'm not an impossible case for God to yeah, use." Yeah, that, and that's and it gives a lot of us hope, you know. As far as I mean, have we gone have we gone too far to the other side, you know, too far away from, you know, I mean, God is gracious to 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 Jonah. I mean, oh yeah, and we'll. I mean, there's. If you don't believe in the grace of God, you could just watch. <laughs> look at Jonah. I mean, he didn't have to chase after the guy. He, he could have just let him go away and and just. But he he still wants to work on Jonah and it's, work through him and work through him. Yeah, I mean that that's just you know. But as far as okay, I you know as far as you know, the canon we know it's in the Book of the Twelve. It's yes. been accepted you know for you know for for a long periods of time in Jewish history. But but sort of like was I asked before is the purpose, you know, okay, what's the purpose of this book? And, you know, you could say, well, God is able to save you from a fish, but no. <laughs> yeah, just in case you have to get swallowed by a fish, God can save you. No, no, that's not the purpose of the book. You know, the purpose, uh, obviously, it tells us things about Jonah. It tells us things about God and and those two main characters in the story. And it tells us something about the people of God. But mainly, obviously, there's a message about God um, through the book of Jonah that God wants to to see and hear. So, Absolutely. If we're looking at purpose, I like to think in this way, um, that first of all, the original adherents or recipients of the preached message was the Assyrians. So one of our facets of purpose must be found in that area. Right. Namely, uh, that God is not only serious about sin, but he's compassionate concerning sinners, right? That's right. One, going to be one of the messages that we're going to see in the book. And that's going to be one of the complications that um, uh, Jonah suffers through. 
But the second aspect is there is the immediate uh, recipients of the preached message, right. but there are the literary recipients, namely the nation of Israel, right? And and so they receive this book. It's part of the Jewish canon, not part of the Assyrian canon, right? Right. And so that message to uh, God's people is that, or to the people of God, is that we ought to bear the characteristics of God in longing for uh, compassion and being willing to be servants of that compassion missiologically, yeah. uh, right? But then third, the message is to um, Jonah, namely, or to resistant voices that, that uh, uh, within the framework, for our listeners, my buddy just did something totally funny, and so I want to crack up here. That's okay. I'm going to hold it together. (laughs) But for our listeners, I think it's important for us to remember uh, in the name, uh, in the words of James Weldon Johnson, the author slash poet, your arms are too short to box with God. Yeah. God always wins. So so there's, there's a message for the people of God. There's a message for the enemy or the the one who God is extending grace. Now, obviously, the people of God, especially if you're the, the original Israelite listeners and you're or you're the the future listeners of this, the believers, the message of bringing a message of hope to those who, in your mind, deserve the the no hope at all. You know, you know. I mean, Jonah says, "I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were gracious. That's why I ran away." I mean, that's, I, that's why you read. Anyway, you know, so you know, there's 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 things for everyone. You know, there's 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 a uh, there's um, and the and the unwillingness. You know, that's that's the thing is with 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 a book like this, it's revealing of the heart. It's revealing of the heart of you know the the, the prophet of God, who God tells, you know, go and and tell these people that really did you guys wrong, and go bring mm. them a message of love and hope. Now. Most of the time when somebody does you wrong, you don't want to bring them a good message. You want them to suffer just like you suffered. And I can sort of can relate to Joan. I can step in his shoes and say, yeah, I want to run away too, God, because I know what the Assyrians did to my people. I know what the Assyrians did to people in general. They were horrible. They were ruthless. They, you know, come and they cut your heads off your leaders and post them and, and make pillars out of them and, and just really, you know... Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a That's spell. That's horrible. You understand his confliction. Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that. And of course, as the people of God, as as the Israelites, okay, we we have the oracles of God, we have the prophets of God. There's there's a tendency to think we're, we're better. You know, this is how we you know. Superior. We're yes. superior because you guys are out there pagan. You guys are all just out there and you're lost. Too bad for you. But in the story... Who are the people that behave more godly, but the pagans in the story? That's an irony that we'll we must talk about when we get to that area. But what is it? Uh, but this also, as far as the purpose of of the story, it tells us a lot. Really, mainly about God. It does. I mean, if there's anything you can get away from this or get out of the story, it's wow. God, God is more gracious and kind and long suffering than than I have imagined. It's it's beyond my imagination, right? It's it's infinite. It's immeasurable. Yeah. And which which kind of leads us to the theological themes because one of the things that we'll discuss here is is uh, the sovereignty of God. Listen, 
it's going to be extraordinary because what you're going to see is God controlling mammoth things and you're going to see him controlling minute things. See, this is funny because I, I call it funny, but it's interesting. God is sovereign as he is controlling, as you just said, the mammoth and, my, and minutia of things. And yet there's this thinking inside of people's minds or Jonah's mind in a sense is that, yeah, I know he's, he's the God of the sea and the land, and yet I'm running away from him. <laughs> Think about that. That is like, wait a second, you just admitted that he's, he's sovereign, yet, but that's how, oftentimes that's how we are, right? We say, God, I trust you. You're in control of my life, right? And then when the storms of life come in, inside, we say, God, where are you? You know, we're, 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 what's going on here? Well, are you, is he, does his control of, of, of your life only happen when it's smooth sailing? Or does he, does he suddenly relinquish control and the storm is a sign that he's not in control? Well, no, he's still in control. And so we are tend to be like Jonah. We say he's in control, but yet I don't want to trust his control, you know? Yeah, it's 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 really astounding because you you kind of think of the content and theology of Psalm one thirty nine here, yes, right? Yeah, and you want to say to him, Jonah, where are you going to run, right? Yeah. And and I don't want to think of God as chasing Jonah, right? Spatially moving from place to place. I don't want to think him of him inhabiting the molecules, as it were. What I want to think of is Jonah doesn't get it. He's ever before the presence of God. Yeah. So his running is really so worthless that it's not even funny. Yeah. So it's laughable in a sense, because where are you going to go that you're not consistently before him? Right. That's the theological concept of the omnipresence of God. Yeah. Not so much that God is everywhere as much as all things are before him. So you can't go anywhere where you're not before the presence of God. Yeah. You know, what's interesting and in just talking about the themes, you know, the sovereignty of God and, and, you know, God being control of all things in life. There's a lot of times there's things that happen in our lives that we say, God, where were you? Right? Mm. Why did you allow this to happen? You know, now this is not a case and Jonah is not that case. It's more of, you know, it's sort of the opposite, you know, God's there and he's gonna, you know, um Jonah's, you know, God's like, Where were you? Well, oh you're in <laughs> you went the opposite way. But with the with the sovereignty of God, we see that God is is not only in control of of things like fish and oceans, worms, and worms and plants. He's in control of even people's hearts. You know the fact that these well people said. in Nineveh are ripe to hear this message. Well, that didn't happen just overnight. That happened because God was sovereign to allow certain things to happen in their history, in their lives, and yet, you know, there's 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 the sovereignty of God goes broad, let's say on the upper um, 30,000 foot view, you know, yes. um, from the airplane view down to the, the very internal presence and or convictions of the, of the heart and the change of the heart that happens. He's sovereign over all that, you know. Um, and of course, the question is, is uh, in Jonah's case is, what side of the equation are you going to land, Jonah? Are you going to to follow that and trust that, or are you going to still pout about that? But 
something else about the theme that we can uh... yeah it's it's I, I loved that by the way that that was an, an exquisite uh, comment about the sovereignty I'm not sure if it was tweetable but that... <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing that's that's important as you said is this concept of repentance right um, and and the offer of it but also the response to it, mm, right? Yeah. And this concept of what it means and what it looks like to turn. Right. Uh, and what it doesn't mean or look like to turn. Uh, that's going to become a major uh, concept within this book that uh, is going to be wrestled with. Mm. Um, another aspect is going to be God's compassion. Yeah. And you mentioned that earlier, but I think God's compassion is not only a challenge to Jonah, it's also going to be a challenge to the nation. By the way, what they kind of do not appreciate, they are the recipients of, right? Because Jonah, while he's saying, that's why I ran, right. you are the recipient of that very compassion that you're running from, right? Right. Um, and I think it's also going to be a message for us that we can take home with us that's very relevant in a day where we have certain incompassionate uh, 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 people who have certain political and or other agendas who have wreaked horrendous uh, um, mayhem on the United States or on our families or on our military, you name it, God's going to challenge you in this book to see things from his perspective and to trust him to sometimes not simply just say, okay, I'll have compassion, but what if he puts in your mess in your mouth and in your life the moment whereby he will articulate that compassion to the very person who has victimized or hurt you greatly. Yeah. yeah. That, I think that's going to, I think that's going to sting a little bit. It's, it's often hard to be compassionate to somebody that doesn't agree with you and is sort of not, you know, as a human, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to, to extend that compassion to somebody that you disagree with or you don't, like their lifestyle, you don't, you know, you, you know their history, and you're here. God is compassionate to the Ninevites before they repent. Yes, He doesn't wait for them to repent to show them compassion or grace or mercy. No, in the midst of them being who they are and what they've done, uh, and if, and uh, we'll probably talk about a little bit of what they've done as the Assyrians, He's compassionate because of the fact they need that. The fact that they are in such a bad state, they're in such a bad state of 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 living you know that he's compassionate to them then you know john here's what i'd really like you to speak on just for a moment and that is um when we're looking at something of this nature when we're looking at the character of god um there is this aspect within us that both embraces and rejects that at the same time yeah and and the message of God anticipates, in fact, it is structured and geared toward the person who is involved in mess or is engaged in messiness. This gospel does not anticipate a clean audience. Listen, listen okay, who is it that, that had the, the most problem with Jesus' message? It's the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law. 
the people who who know what the law says, but they miss the the the, the character of God revealed in the writings of the law. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about times when they would bring uh, when Jesus is hanging out with the sinners, and they would complain about that. Like in Luke 15, they would say, "I can't believe this man is is accepting of sinners. You know, he eats with them and he accepts them." Or uh, the woman who who is uh, who is uh, washing Jesus's feet or anointing his head or whatever, they complain this 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 what kind of woman this is or um, the the people that would be around Jesus. Don't you know that this person is a sinner? I can't believe he, I can't believe he's a prophet of God. No prophet of God would hang out with sinners. Well, what's revealed in the story of Jonah is, is shows and through the Gospel of Christ is that no no god is is very compassionate to people that need it the most and jesus would even say that he says listen it's not the the the, the healthy that need a doctor it's the ones who are sick that need a doctor and that is the message of the gospel and god is the same god through christ as he is in the old testament with jonah namely the people who need the compassion most are the ones that are probably in the worst state of sin because he knows that there are eternal souls at stake. He knows that they are they are in bondage to their sin. He he knows that unless he does something to step in to change the situation, they are stuck. They are they are they are they are doomed. And so you have you have this within the story of Jonah, where the the Ninevites who hear it, or even the sailors who hear about God, and repent and follow God. God is compassionate to those people, um, and it's and it, just as a Christian, as we think about, you know, as a Christian, who is it in our lives or that we know or come across that you think is most undeserving of God's grace and, and mercy? That's the person who probably deserves it the most. That's the person who needs to hear it the most. It's the one who who is the one who's religious and accepts what you say, but doesn't really believe it. That's that's a different story. The person who is just in a really really bad state, man, they need the compassion of God because they probably don't have it, and that might be the one thing that will change their lives is that somebody actually coming in and caring for them, or telling them about God, or telling them about Christ and what He's done for them. Um, oftentimes, people have this front they put up. You know, people who are hurt and broken have this. They have this hardened shell they put up because they they don't want to be hurt. You know. And oftentimes it's it's the it's the ones where you just come and just love them and be kind to them and show them compassion that that there's a genuineness that that melts their soul you know blessed are the poor in spirit yes right those whose souls are cognizant of their abject spiritual poverty before God yeah for theirs is the kingdom of heaven that's right and and by the way let me just suggest. We have to park our subjective emotions at the cross, yeah. at the word of God, at the gospel. We have to let go of our pain and our agony that is associated with, number one, Genesis 3, living in a fallen world, and the fallen human race that continues to propagate what they are. Namely, they are sinners by nature, thus they are sinners in action. So what do you expect? That's what you're going to get. I'm not making an excuse for their sin. No. I'm simply saying their sin makes sense. Right. And so with that, then, you anticipate that 
that it's going to require uh, something radical, and that radical message is going to go against my sense of justice, my sense of a vengeance. It's going to go against all of that. So I have to recognize that this is a purely God-driven message. In the New Testament, a purely Christian message. Listen, it's impossible to pray for those who despitefully use you or mistreat you or, or treat them well unless you have the spirit-empowered Bible-informed capacity to bow your subjective feelings at the cross and recognize that Christ's message and his person is superior to my pain. You know, what's interesting as we're thinking about the compassion of God and and, uh, sort of the character of God, um, probably one of the very first things that God says about himself is in the account where he's with Moses, and uh, I think it's in in Exodus Exodus 3. 30, is it 33? When he introduces himself, he well, introduces himself as I am, and then when he uh, shows, himself shows himself on the mountain, right? Yeah, That's so I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of Exodus 33, um, and he says, um, oh boy, where, did I, where is it now? I'm missing my place here. Oh, 19, verse 19. Um, it says, um, I will, I will, my, uh, well, he says in a couple of places, this is one significant place where he's talking with Moses. He says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. Um, that's not the place I was looking at, but another one where he declares who he is, the Lord, the Lord, compassion. You know what verse I'm talking about? Yes. Yes, I do. Where he, um, dis- he, um, displaces he's he's this is after the the the, the two stones uh, the ten commandments have been destroyed the first time he makes the second set um uh the second time and i think it's in i thought yeah. it was 32 is it 32 uh, you're actually in 33 it, it was a few verses further let me just i mean a few verses back yeah. um in uh chapter uh, 34 if i may yes a, a few verses forward and he says this he says i am i am uh Yes, there it is. I I am, I am God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Okay, stop, stop. This is Exodus 34, verse 6, and this is the Lord speaking to Moses, and he is revealing himself, his character, to Moses. And what does he say again? He says, I am, I am God, compassionate, gracious, Slow to anger. Stop, stop, stop. What's the very first thing he says about himself? He says he's compassionate. Yeah, he says the Lord, or you say I am, I say the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God. Compassion. It's like when you think of somebody, that's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a person. That's usually like the main characteristics of that person. Here, God, the first thing he says about himself is, he doesn't say sovereign. He doesn't say angry. He says compassionate and gracious. Well, actually, what's interesting within the framework of this text structurally and content-wise, John, is it's very interesting to me because even though you have a list, there are a string of things that are associated, right? right? right. So that the compassion is very much like the grace, right. very much like his long nose, Slow, literally yes. the concept, Slow, right? Slow In other anger. words, yeah. God does not flare his nose uh, quickly right. is the idea. And then he goes on to the, say a Bounding in loving kindness. So my whole point here is this is the character of God in Exodus. It's the character of God in the book of Jonah demonstrated to the to so-called the enemies 
it's the same God who's demonstrated through, through Jesus Christ in the Gospels. It's the same God. It's not a different God. It's not the God of wrath, you know? My point is here, if, I, if I'm thinking about God, if I'm going to camp out somewhere on what God's like, it's going to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That's where I'm going to camp and out. Truth. Yes. And truth. And so oftentimes, though, we think of people or we think of people think of God as being angry or very distant or, you know, not really caring. And then some of my friends, well, God's sovereign. And so we, there's this depiction of God sitting up with his hands folded, I'm sovereign, I'm going to just be sovereign. And that just really communicates nothing to me. But when I hear about the compassion of God, it tells me there's a there's an identification or realization or understanding on here's a person who is not in a good place, you know, and I'm going to help that person out. You know, that's sort of the sort of uh, you know, here's here are the people, here are these people, these Ninevites, these Assyrians who are really really bad people. And they have, but they have no way of changing themselves. I have to tell them, I have to help them out. I got to bring a message, hey, listen, um, I care about you enough to warn you that your city is going to be destroyed. You know, he could have just destroyed the city and not warned them at all. But he's compassionate and at least giving them a warning and saying them a prophet that says, hey, this, this place is going to be gone unless you guys do something about it. That's a compassionate God, you know, who warns. And, and it's interesting that it's, it's not the people of God who heed the warning, it's these, these pagan unbelievers who say, yeah. I accept that. It's the same God who in the book of Ezekiel, and I think that this is of the utmost importance, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yeah. So there's no, what's the Baptist people that... Uh, that uh, oh, yes. Yes, the individuals who go to... The Westboro um, Baptist yes, people, they, they protest every... people's deaths no, and, that's, and celebrate and... Yeah. God does not take pleasure in that. Yeah. You know? Okay, so here are the themes we've talked about: the sovereignty of God, the, the, the obviously the, the compassion, grace of God, um, and there are other things that will other, come you, up. There's other things uh, that will come up as we jump in, but uh, it would be nice. Let's to, get to uh, the story. Get our feet wet. Let's get to the story. Okay, so we are gonna we're gonna probably cover a little bit of chapter one. So if you look at chapter one, and really um, there's two main scenes in chapter one, verses one through three. And then four through what I think sixteen, uh, or seventeen rather, or two main scenes that are going to happen. And of course, the story is going to start with with a word coming to to Jonah right off the bat. No, you know, no introductory stuff before that, which we'll talk about in a second. So let me just let's focus on the first scene. Okay, the calling of Jonah. Act one. Here act one. Scene one. Okay. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to, the, to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Okay, that's the word of the Lord. First thing that happens, the word of the Lord comes and gives the message. Go, arise, go to this great city called Nineveh, and speak against it. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, and paid the fare, and went down into the, uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Right off the bat. First scene, okay, simple enough. God calls, to, the word of the Lord comes, he calls Jonah, hey, go, go to Nineveh, 
Jonah says, well, Jonah doesn't say, he does. His actions speak louder than his words. <laughs> he proceeds to go to, to Tarshish. Now, I said last time that Tarshish could be Spain, but since reading even more, I realized that they think that Tarshish is more in the area of Asia Minor because it's often mentioned with other places near Greece and in the area of the, of the world and makes more sense. Either way, he's running the opposite direction. He is fleeing. He's not wanting. He's going a different direction than Nineveh, which would have been more inland uh, into modern-day well, Iraq now. So um, let's talk about that because the story starts sort of like the way we watched, you know, modern film, fast-paced, right off the bat. Jonah, go. Go do this. Absolutely. Uh, literarily, yes. this is a dramatic dream. Uh, not uh, as though it is fictional. I mean, you're not going to lack drama, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is a dramatic dream like it's fictional or not real. I'm saying this is a dream come true as far as literature is concerned, right? Yeah. Because you're not going to go to sleep in this book. No, and there's a lot... There's a there's a lot that is, is happening in the Hebrew text, which we'll, we'll bring oh, out. Big time. I mean, even just the first word of the of the of the Hebrew communicates a lot. Um, so why don't we start there, right? Okay, we'll, so we'll speak. Let's speak English, though, okay? Because <laughs> you know we'll lose that the audience. So we, but the first word. It's 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 literally vahi, right? Right. But this term. Um, uh, uh, is an interesting concept because uh, this term, uh, when you have that first f term that we just mentioned, yeah, this 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 concept, uh, it came about or 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 in, in translation, came to pass or, yeah, it yeah, came about or, or it happened. came to pass. Yeah. Uh, that phrase actually, first of all. If you were to take that first letter in the Hebrew, it could suggest a connection with a larger story or right. a larger uh, uh, See, work. And this is what I was talking about before. Is is and just to alluding to that that the you know the vav or vav mm -hmm. and it came to pass. Normally, when that's found, it's uh, it's found in, in other historical narratives. You know, correct. You know, um, Joshua or whatever. But it's also found when it's as far as my understanding when it's found in other prophetical books. There has something been called. There's something um, that has happened before. Either the calling of the uh, the calling of the prophet. Usually, it tells you. Okay, here it tells where uh, he's the son of Amittai, but that's it. But normally, it's like okay, during the king of so and so and so and so, so and so, the son of so and so was called. You know, but even before that, there's often you know. But this fits. There's a story, as you say before. This fits the fact that uh, if there's a if is there. A, if this is part of a, a, a context, like this isn't the start of the story. This jumps into the story with Jonah already being somebody. This is not a call for him to become a prophet. He already is a prophet, which means that his story is connected with, obviously, the rest of the Twelve, but he's also connected then with what's written about him in, in uh, first or Second Kings 14, rather. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you go from, um, now it came to pass... Or it came to be, right? And then you have this phrase, devar, devar Yehovah, or the word of the Lord, right. uh, uh, came to right. uh, uh, Jonah. It, what's interesting is, and I love this phrase, the word of the Lord came to him. It, first of all, it's important for us to associate this phrase on a broader scale. Because as I said earlier, the same phraseology is found in Hosea, 
it's found in Joel, it's found in Michael, it's found in Zephaniah, right. all of those references. Right. One chapter, one verse one, right? But, but within a context. Within the context. Historical context. So the argument here is that it argues for not only a continuity, as it were, right. um, in this book, but it argues for a continuity of legitimacy with other pr- legitimate prophets whose legitimacy or authenticity we do not question. Now, I, I maybe this is, you know, as we're conversing here, I'm just thinking if he is, if obviously, okay, the, the, the structure, the first word is also found in these other books, great, and he's part of the other 12, the fact that he's mentioned in in Second Kings fourteen, I want to read that section because I think it may shed some light on uh, on really sort of even the content of the story. In Second Kings fourteen, um, it says in verse well, I'll do uh, verse uh, twenty three first. It says in the fifteenth year of Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel became king of Samaria in Samaria, which is n- another name for Israel and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this king is not very good. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And that's referring back to um, the false idol ship and worship that was set up um, at that time when the kingdom split. But then it says, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as as, as far as the Sea of Arabah, which is the Dead Sea, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through Jonah, the son of Amittai, or through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For now, let's continue, because here's what uh, he says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeremiah, the, the son of Joash. So, Here's what's going on. Here's this king who's really bad, right? Jerob, uh, this second Jeroboam, let's say, is really bad. But yet, at, even though he's really bad, God doesn't say, I'm going to blot out Israel. He still is going to keep Israel. And yet, during this time, he sees the affliction of Israel. And yet, he still uses Israel. He uses Jonah during this time to prophesy certain things. The point is, it seems that... that um, the people themselves who are, aren't living in good times, they're needing a compassionate God to give them a message too. You know what I'm saying? Yes. They're living in the time when here's this king who's really, really bad, and they are needing to hear the word of the Lord as well. It strikes me as odd, that, not odd, but as, as significant that now when Jonah he, hears the next message, let's say, because I think the message about Jonah and Nevites is after this, is I'm going to assume. Yes. Well, he should have understood, hey, we were in the same boat. No, we're not the Ninevites, but we were in a bad state ourselves. You know, we were following Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second was just like Jeroboam the first, which was not really good. And, and we were in a bad state, yet God decided not to blot our name out and decided to give us compassion and send prophets our way to warn us. And so it's interesting, this irony will follow afterwards uh, about John being unwilling. Yes, yes. And, and, And I think it's important as we're looking at this concept, the word of the Lord, Yes, right? Um, I think it does several things, frankly. I think 
it argues for a continuity uh, with the state and status of the other prophets, right? It, it, it's basically establishing he's legitimately hearing from God. Right. Uh, I, I think it also argues that um, God is the source of his message. Um, I'll talk about what that looks like linguistically and grammatically in a moment. Right. But I was, okay, just to, I know, just to sort of tag on what we were just discussing on, the word of Lord that comes to Jonah to the Ninevites, you would you would have. I mean, I would think. Okay, it's it's like this. Jesus says, you know, um, he tells a story about the man who's been forgiven much and the man's been forgiven little, right? Well, yes. here, you know, Israel's been forgiven much. Okay, Israel has the oracles of God. They have the law of God. They know better, right? And yet, they're not willing to forgive the Ninevites, so to speak. You know, that's this sort of the parallel there. There's a message, there's a, there's sort of indirectly through Jonah is is a, is a um, not conviction, what's the word I'm looking for, a... Um, well, there's it's, a- it's a subtle message to them saying, you're, you guys, listen, I just decided to keep you guys around, and yet I want to use you to be a light to the nations to, to give this compassion to them as well. Yeah, it, isn't it odd that the compassion that flows to us, we struggle for it to flow through us? Right. Right? And, and that's the contradiction that's going on. Yeah. Um, I, I think, again, further that this phrase, the word of the Lord, um, it's interesting because uh, it assumes or lays, at least in my thinking, a basis for the authenticity for all that will follow hereafter. Right. In other words, uh, questioning the rest of this book, remember how this book starts. It's the word of the Lord. Right. So you want to be very careful about questioning the details that follow yeah. because it's following on the basis or substratum or foundation of it came to him as the word of the Lord. Do you know what's interesting in this book, as far as I understand, the word of the Lord always comes to pass, but the word of the people don't. Yes. And the will of the people don't. So here's 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 the word of the Lord. Um you know, go to go Jonah. Go to, to go to Nineveh, right? He tries to not do the word Lord. What ends up What ends up happening? Well, he is going to go to Nineveh eventually. You know, despite his attempts on going the opposite way. And though he says he says, "Here's a message: preach." Okay, the city will be destroyed. Now he relents because they repent. God is able to do that. You know, whereas as um, the the will of of Jonah, the will of even the the sailors of wanting to help Jonah out, you know, throw me over. And Jonah, um, Jonah's will of trying to run opposite him will never happen. In other words, my point is, God's word always happens. What God wants to happen will happen. It will succeed despite the the the, the reticence and the, the resistance of man. God's word is going to happen. And in Jonah's case, you know, he took it the long way to get there. Let's maybe close this this episode down. The significance of the word of the Lord, you know, and it's it's a phrase that we've just barely got into the first the first verse, but the significance of of God's word to His people, to His prophets, to the the people that He wants to use, and the significance of that word being communicated to other people as well. You know, Absolutely. Uh, let me just mention. Uh, uh, a technicality here. If you're looking at this phrase as you and I have in the Hebrew text, it's a it's a genitive noun. 
um, a genitive of sorts. You just threw no. the genitive noun out there. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> it's a genitive noun in construct, right? right? And But here's what we mean by that. That it, it functions as a possessive so that a translation of this God's could be... Word. The Lord said, right. or 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 in the Targum, which is the Aramaic translation right. of the Hebrew text, they translate it this way: "There was a prophecy from I am." Right. Right. Here's the idea, and and I think this is important. We agree, John, that this phrase appears in other prophets. Right. We agree that it argues for the legitimacy of the prophet's message. In other words, God is the source of the message. Right. We argued that um, it gives an authenticity to the biographical narrative that we're going to read. We argued that it established him as an emissary. So so he's imp- under employ and under contract right now. He's God's man at this moment. But we also argued that what he's hearing is the word of the Lord. It is the equivalent of thus says the Lord right. or God said. Now, here's what I want to suggest. And I think this is of preeminent importance. When you're looking at this book, this man knows what he's resisting. Yeah. This is not under question. This is not, um, this is not in ambiguity. This man is refusing to be an emissary, a representative of God, a voice of God and his character. Now, you got to ask, what would bring a person to that state of mind or that state of the heart that would, especially one who calls himself a prophet or who is recognized as a prophet, to not want to bring God's word to people in great, great need. We're going to discuss that in our next episode, but before we engage to that level, may I just introduce a warning? For our listeners, a warning that you and I, John, take very seriously. Be careful how you stand in position to the Word of God. Hmm. When you know that this is 66 books that comes from God, you don't, you don't get to say, I'm an American and I choose what I'll obey and I won't obey. You don't get to say, I'm a man and I'll either submit to that or not submit to that. You don't get to say... I have human rights, and so God takes a back seat to what I feel like I want to do or what I do. Listen, the truth is, he's sovereign. You're not. He's the authority. We're not. This is non-negotiable. And I think what we don't want to do for liberal, historical, um, uh, um, um, individuals or or for uh, liberal historical um, um, scholars who who look at the historicity of the text and beg its legitimacy, there's a reason behind that. And the reason is, do I really have to submit to this? Do do I really have to live according to this? Is this really the word of God? Because if it's not the word of God, then maybe this doesn't apply. That's That's a poor card at best to play. Because Genesis to Revelation, as, as it is presented, and as it is to be understood, is altogether legitimate. So God is not the one on trial here. You and I are. Right. And with that being said, we need to know something, that the nature of the word of the Lord came to him is equal to the genitive of source that we find in the epistolary literature 
Paul an apostle of, right? Right. In other words, we not only receive our message from God, but we are ultimately responsible and culpable to God for how we articulate and or carry out or adhere to that message. So I think it's important for us to know, sir, ma'am, husband, wife, father, mother, whoever you are, um, this word governs and guides your life, our lives, whether or not we like it. And so one will benefit to find him or herself not questioning the legitimacy of God's word, but asking God to give us the grace to adhere to his word. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.